I'm Owen Strickler, and please join me in reading God's word from Joshua chapter 2, 1 through 24. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially from Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and rested there. But it was told to the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to spy out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to spy out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and, hid, and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the crossing places. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before the spies lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard these reports, our heart melted, and no courage remained in anyone no, any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, since, you have dealt, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household, and give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and save our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell us this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not encounter you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. And the men said to her, We shall be exempt from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house outside will have blood on his own head, and we will be innocent. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood will be on our head, if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be exempt from the oath which you have made us swear. Then she said, According to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied a scarlet cord in the window. So they departed, and came to the hill country, and remained there for three days, until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had searched for them all along the road, but had not found them. 
Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country, and they crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. Then they reported to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, The Lord has indeed handed over to us all the land. Furthermore, all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of us. Thank you, Owen. It's our privilege this morning to have uh, Pastor Tommy Martin and his wife, uh, Ruthie, with us today. Uh, they come to us from Ellensburg, and Pastor Tommy was a pastor for over 35 years with the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, serving churches in Spokane, Moses Lake, and most recently, Ellensburg. He and his wife, Ruthie, have been married for 48 years, have three children and nine grandchildren. Would you uh, join me in welcoming Pastor Tommy as he... to sit while I preach, if that's okay with you. You're sitting, so I figure I should anyway. <laughs> it's a real privilege for, uh, for us to be here this morning with you. I appreciate any opportunity to come and share God's word with people. Although I'm very sorry for the circumstances that have brought your church to this place, uh, my wife and I join you in praying for your pastor and his family and all that they're going through right now. We pray for his healing and trust that God will be with them every step of the way. I can't imagine the difficulty of the decisions that they have been faced with, and I know that what is sustaining them during this difficult time will be your, your prayers, your, uh, your friendship, your kindness to them. As a pastor myself, I can tell you how much the prayers of the church mean to Pastor Nock and his family. They are literally hanging on to those prayers and words of encouragement from you. Would you pray with me right now? Our Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege we have of coming together. We, uh, we don't want to take that for granted. We thank you that in coming together, we know that you are here and that you are here to help us, to encourage us, to guide us. We pray now that as we look at your word that you would speak to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come upon your word and, and make it make sense into our hearts that we might serve you and love you in the way that you have loved us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The second chapter of the book of Joshua is one of the great salvation stories of the Old Testament tells us of a woman named Rahab. Initially, everything is stacked against Rahab. She has no family background of the knowledge of the living God. She is a pagan living in a thoroughly pagan city. She is known in the community as a prostitute, making her living in a way that is a constant offense towards God. Yet this is a woman that God chooses to save and deliver his people. It says in the, in the passage that we just read that she received the spies and she hid them from the king's investigation squad. However, word got out that the spies had been seen at her house, and so the soldiers came there looking for her almost immediately. 
Rahab came up with a lie to lead the soldiers off on a wild goose chase while she hid the spies up on her roof under some stacks of flax, pile of flax that she had up there. So that's, uh, that's kind of strike two against Rahab. First she's a prostitute and now she's a liar. How can God use this person to save his people? How could God honor all of this? But God does honor Rahab. He honors what she does. We know that because in Hebrews 11.31 it says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And then again in James chapter 2 it says, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Rahab found herself in the, in the difficulty of a moral choice in which either option, whatever she did, involves sin. She had to choose the lesser of two evils, and as far as she was concerned, that meant lying to save the lives of these spies. And according to the New Testament, it was her faith that saved her and her family and eventually saved the, uh, the people of Israel. We find the roots of her faith deeply planted in verses 9 through 11. If I can read those again, it says, And she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. The people of Jericho had heard, um, because she was a prostitute, she probably dealt with um, men who traveled back and forth around the country and Word somehow had gotten to her and to the rest of the community of what God had already done for the Israelites. Uh, word had gotten out how he had brought them through the Red Sea and how the Egyptians had chased them into the Red Sea and the Red Sea had fallen upon the Egyptians and killed them all. He had heard about the Amorites and how um, Israel came up against the Amorites and Sihon and Og were kings and how they were defeated. And Rahab is convinced that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And she's prepared to cut herself off from her own background to be risked being charged as a traitor to do everything she could to help these spies because of her new faith allegiance in the, the one true and living God. She knows that her future depends on this God, so... She casts herself on his mercy and the faithfulness of his representatives, these spies. Rahab's eventual rescue depends not only on her initial confession of faith, leading her to seek God's mercy, but on her continuing obedience to the instructions that the spies gave her. They told her to take this scarlet cord and put it in her window so that they would know where not to attack when they attacked the city. This is why she's such an attractive example for James to use in his New Testament letter. 
James is the one who really teaches us about the connection between faith and action, faith and deeds. Several times he asserts this close connection. In James 2.17, it says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith doesn't have any life in it if it's not accompanied with action, if there's not deeds that go along with it. Then it says in verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Faith without the deeds, there's nothing to it. Verse 22, Abraham's faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham, we know, was a man of great faith, but how do we know he was a man of great faith? It was by what he did. Not just because he seemed to have a lot of knowledge of God, not just because he was a friend of God, but it was because of what he did. Again, in verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Over and over, uh, James keeps hammering this truth over and over again. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So besides Abraham, Rahab is the example, the other example that James uses of this uh, faith revealed in actions principle. When she tied the red cord in her window, she did it to symbolize her faith in and her obedience to Yahweh, Israel's God. Not because the object itself, not because that uh, scarlet uh, cord had any great power in and of itself, but simply because the spies asked her to do it, and she was putting her action with her faith. Perhaps a useful reminder to us is the need to continue to trust and obey even when we cannot see how or why things are going to work out. You ever find that true in your life? You know that God wants you to do something and he's called you to do it, but you just, you just can't see how it's ever going to work out to do the right thing. And so we're tempted to do the wrong thing and we're tempted to come around it somehow and do, do it in some other way. Most of us love to hear messages about how powerful God is. Scripture is full of images that reassure us of God's power. He's, he's called a rock, a fortress, a strong tower. He is a king and a warrior. It says uh, in the Psalms that he makes the clouds his chariots and rides on the wings of the wind. We're told that God makes the earth tremble by a look. He makes the mountains smoke at a touch. And when he raises his voice, the earth melts. Most of us as Christians love to hear these stories and images about the power of God because we know we need a powerful God to believe in, a powerful God to listen to and to obey. We want a God who's powerful. But here's the problem. That information alone is not enough to make us courageous human beings. I can receive a lot of information designed to assure me that God is power and that his power is sufficient, but the information alone doesn't transform my heart and character. In order for such a transformation to take place, certain actions and experiences are required. A classic example of this occurs when Moses has died. The people are wondering, who's going to take care of us now? Moses has been our leader for all these years through the wilderness. 
but repeatedly he reminds them, and, and last week in the message you heard this over and over again, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When it's time for the Israelites to cross the River Jordan, God promises to make a way for them. They can trust him to see them across. But God asks them to take the first step. That's the hard one, that first step. Joshua 3.13, it says, And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. The first thing that had to happen is those priests needed to walk down and actually step in the water. They couldn't just stand there on the edge and wait for the water to stop. No, God wanted them to put action to their faith. They had to step into the waters of the Jordan. The people will experience God's power, but they have to take the first step. They didn't just have to believe in their hearts that God would take care of them. They had to take a step of faith. They had to get their feet wet first. Rahab didn't just have to believe that the spies were going to be true to their word and protect her and her family. She had to take the first step, and her first step was she had to hide these spies up on her roof under the flax. There was a question I heard years ago in a message that has uh, it's always stuck with me, and it's helped me to know whether or not I'm really trusting God in my life. And the question is, what am I doing that I could not do apart from the power of God? Ask yourself that question. What are you doing that you could not do apart from the power of God in your life? Now, there's a lot that we can do in our own power, right? We're smart, educated, well-rounded people. We have a lot going on with ourselves. But there are some things that are only going to happen in our lives by the power of God working in us and through us. It's only when we are open to the Holy Spirit and invite him in and allow him to come and give us his power. When I take the risk of living generously, I discover that I can really trust God to take care of me only when I step in the Jordan first. When I risk using my spiritual gift, I can know the joy of being used by God. But first, I have to get my feet wet. When I risk sharing my faith with someone, I know the joy of helping someone in their faith journey. But I have to take that step of faith first before it's going to help. And one of the things that we learn from this story is that if God can rescue Rahab... No one is beyond his reach or concern. I mean, when you think about it, was Rahab the best he could do in Jericho? When he was looking for people to help his people come, was Rahab the best he could come up with? A prostitute? A liar? You see, God is no respecter of persons. And this really should teach us not to give up on our as yet unbelieving family and friends. If you're a Christian, you probably have people in your life, family, friends, that you've been praying for for maybe years and years that they would come to know Christ, that they would see God working in their lives. I know I have. I have a whole list of people that I've prayed for for years. And, 
And it's true, sometimes I have doubts. Is God ever going to hear that prayer? Is God ever going to answer that prayer? Or is it just this person is too far gone? They're, they, they have intellectually uh, destroyed themselves, and they're no longer even able to listen to what God has to say to them. But if God can choose a Rahab to be his follower, no one is outside of his reach. God is always at work behind the scenes, working in people's lives in ways that we don't see. We don't know what's going on in someone else's heart. What God asks us to do is to continue to be faithful, to continue to pray for them, to continue to, to step into the water in faith and do something that maybe will lead them in the right direction. The city of Jericho stood as one of the most imposing, most well-fortified cities in the ancient world. The walls of Jericho were high and thick, and anyone looking at them wouldn't, you couldn't imagine that you could get through those walls. But those walls were not too difficult for God to give to the Israelites. We should never write off anybody because of their background or history, because God delights in saving sinners, right? God delights in saving sinners. In Luke 19 and 10, it says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came, so that people might know him. Earlier in Luke, Jesus is described as the man who receives sinners and eats with them. He receives sinners. He doesn't look for good people. He doesn't look for the people with the most potential. He looks for sinners, people that will come to the realization that they are sinners. And we'll, con we'll confess that sin. There's no life so impervious that God's grace cannot break into it in transforming power. The Holy Spirit has the power to take God's word and penetrate people's minds and hearts so that they cannot escape his truth. The story about Rahab and Jericho is a clear call to us to have confidence in the mercy and grace of God. When we see God working clearly in Rahab's life, we can then see him working in the lives of people that we know and love. Maybe the people that we have been praying for wouldn't be the best uh, opportunities in our minds for people to come to know God. But God knows them, and he knows their hearts, and he knows what's going on. And all he asks us is to be faithful in our witness to them. I know of a pastor who did an experiment in church one time. He must have been uh, quite an interesting pastor. This was quite an interesting experiment. Actually, he had a guy with a PhD in electrical engineering do the experiment. He was in this huge hall, huge church, and he turned off all the lights. And then this guy uh, hooked up an ordinary pickle to some wires and passed an electrical current through the pickle. And the pickle glowed. It gave off light. It wasn't a lot of light, but it was enough light to read by. There was light. And the pastor's point was, if God can make a pickle glow, what can he do through you? <laughs> Many people believe that the flow of the Holy Spirit is saved for just certain people. For, you know, the Mother Teresas and the Billy Grahams of this world. That they themselves would never be the recipients of that kind of power. That kind of power, you know, that, that's meant for 
pastors and elders and deacons and holy people. You know what I'm talking about. Couldn't be met for me. I'm sure Rahab must have thought of that. Couldn't, God's power couldn't be met for me. But throughout history, God has caused his power to flow through the most unlikely people. The perfect example being Rahab, the prostitute, or Jacob, the con man, or Zacchaeus, the cheater. If God can make a pickle glow, what can he do through you? You may think that you have failed God too many times for him to ever use you to do good in his kingdom. You may think that your sin is just too great for God to forgive. That is, you've, you've crossed the line somewhere and God could never forgive you because of your sin. So many people have that idea in their heads. They think they're lost. They think they're too lost. They don't understand grace. They don't understand God's forgiveness. But if God can use a prostitute and a liar to save Israel, what could he do through you? What could he do through you? I believe an important reason why God so often asks us to take a first step has to do with the nature of faith and how it grows. Most people I know wish that at certain points in their life they had more faith. Most, most Christians. I would imagine that if I asked for a showing of hands here this morning for people who wish they had more faith in their lives, I'd get a lot of hands raised. We, we Christians think that way. We wish we had more faith. I know of people who torment themselves over having too little faith. And they're certain that their lack of faith is the reason for an unanswered prayer in their life. Or their sin is, is, is too much for God to forgive. And that's why they're so spiritually weak. is because they sinned that sin one time way in their past. Or they're caught up in that sin. And they can't seem to get over it. They're looking for a sense of direction in their life. And they just can't see God giving it to them because of their sin. When people wrestle with doubt, they may tell themselves, well, I'll just try harder. And sometimes we pastors are guilty of, of trying to get that message across to people. Well, if you just try harder to have more faith, and forgive us when we say that because it's just not true. That doesn't work. Faith is not the kind of thing that can be acquired by just trying harder. Imagine if someone were to say to you, I find myself doubting old faithful. I'm just not sure it can be trusted. Would your advice be, well, just try harder. Try harder to, to um, have faith in old faithful. No, the best advice for that person would be, well, just go hang around old faithful. You're there long enough, old faithful's going to be faithful. Just about every hour, it's going to go off. Now, it's not as faithful as it used to be, I understand. Years ago, it was really much right down to the hour, but I've been there enough times to know that within the hour, within five or ten minutes of the hour, it's going to go off. Because old faithful is faithful. And the more you know it, the more you can trust it. Don't try to have more faith. Just try to know God more. Just try to get closer to God. Get to know Him better. And because God is faithful, the better you know Him, the more you will trust Him. 
The way to get to know his trustworthiness is by risking to obey him. It's putting your foot in the water. It's taking that step of faith. That's how you get to know God better. Not by just trying harder. Probably the climax of the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is the clearest example of faith there is in the movies. If you remember that movie, Indiana has to surpass three supreme tests to reach the Holy Grail and save his father who is dying. The first test is the breath of God. As he walks down a corridor, Indiana must bow at precisely the right moment to keep from having his head chopped off by these large revolving metal blades. So he does it. The second test is called the Word of God. Jones must walk on just the right stones, the ones that spell out God's name in Latin, to keep from falling through the floor to his death. But the third test, the path of God, is the most difficult. Indiana comes to the edge of a large chasm, about 100 feet across, and it's just seemingly bottomless. There's just, you can't see the bottom. On the other side of the chasm is a door where the Holy Grail is, supposedly, in this movie. And that's also where his father is, his father who has been injured and needs the water from the Holy Grail. The only way that his father is going to be saved is if Indiana Jones gets there. On the other side of the chasm is this doorway, but on his side, the instructions come to him and they say, only in the leap from the lion's head will he prove his worth. Only in the leap from the lion's head will he prove his worth. And Indiana says to himself, it's impossible. Nobody can jump that far. And as you're looking at it in the movie, it's true. Nobody could jump that far. His father says, you must believe, boy, you must believe. And even though every nerve and fiber of his being screams that he, he must not do it, Indiana walks up to the edge of the cliff and he lifts up his foot and he steps out into thin air, hoping that he won't end up like Wile E. Coyote in the Roadrunner cartoons. If you've seen the movie, you know what happens next. He takes the step and all of a sudden an invisible bridge shows up under him and he's able to walk across and get the grail and save his father. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the writer of the Hebrews says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. How much faith is required? Well, the good news is not a lot. Just a little bit. Just enough to get you moving in the right direction. You don't have to do it perfectly. You can have doubts. You can have big doubts. That's okay. Christians have doubts. But if you're willing to take the step, God promises that he'll be there to catch you. If you're willing to take that step, that's what, that's what grace does. It enables you to take that step. A few years ago at Azusa Pacific University, they held a special meeting just before graduation. They had uh, some administrators and some students and some faculty. And at one point, the, the university president, Dr. John Wallace, he pulled three seniors into the center of the room. And he wanted them to tell the people what they were going to be doing after graduation. And so one by one, these three seniors uh, told how they were using their education, their 
newfound four-year education to serve the poor of the world. They were going to places where people were poor and where their poverty was just almost hopeless. And they were going to join in living in that poverty. They weren't going to stand outside of it and mail it in. They were going to join and live in that poverty with these people. And all three of them told their little story about what they were going to be doing. They thought that's why they were there, was to tell these people their story. But then Dr. Wallace turned his back on the audience and faced the students, and he told them the real reason that they were there that day. He said, someone you don't know has heard about what you're planning on doing for these next few years, and he wants you to be able to serve these people where you are going without any impediment. So he's given a gift. He's asked to remain anonymous, but here is what he has done for you. And he turned to the first student and looked her in the eye and said, you have been forgiven your school debt of $105,000. Took a few moments for the words to sink in, but she finally understood and she began to cry at the sheer unexpected generosity of a mountain of debt wiped out by a person she'd never met before. And he turned to the next student and he said, your student, debt, student loan debt of $70,000 has been paid. By the time he turned to the third student, she knew what was coming, but it was all she could do to, to not believe what was happening until she heard the words, you have been forgiven your debt of $130,000. Of course, all three students were trembling. Their lives had been changed in the twinkling of an eye by the extravagance of someone they'd never met. It wasn't a dry eye in the whole room, if you can imagine. An unpayable debt, an unforgettable debt, an unseen giver. Grace. Forgiveness. There is a bigger debt that you and I labor under. We give it labels such as regret, shame, guilt, brokenness. Sin is what it is. But God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. As Christians, we know what is coming, yet we need to be reminded at times of what is true for us. Your debt has been forgiven. Your sin has been forgiven. You don't have to pay for it. When it comes to that day on Judgment Day, when you stand before God and your sin is brought up there, Jesus will say, all taken care of, debt forgiven, your slate is wiped clean. That's what waits for us as Christians, the joy of grace, forgiveness. The same thing that was true for Rahab can be true for you today if you've never experienced that. You can experience grace and forgiveness just as she did. Doesn't matter what you've done, or what you have failed to do. Doesn't matter if you're a prostitute, or a liar, or both. God's grace and forgiveness is bigger than your sin. And God wants to use you 
He's forgiven you because he wants to use you. And all he's waiting for is for you to take that first step. Will you do it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for people like Rahab. People that we can look at in Scripture and and we can realize that if you could forgive her, if you could redeem her, you can redeem us. No sin that we have committed is ever too big for you to forgive. And I would pray this morning, Father, if there is anyone here who has never received that forgiveness, that this morning they would take that step of faith. That they'd get their feet wet. That they'd come to you with their, their brokenness and their sin and give it to you and ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to step out in our faith. To not just believe in our heads what's true. But in our hearts to step out in faith and do what you are calling us to do. Not because we deserve it. Not because we're great people. But because of your grace. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tommy, for bringing the Lord's, Lord's word to us today. I want to send you out with a benediction from Romans 8, 33 to 39. Who will bring charges against, the God, against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or trouble, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or dangers, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in these things we overwhelmingly conquer, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.